Good morning, brothers and sisters. Will you please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. This morning our text is Matthew 27 verses 45 through 56. As we continue through the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew's gospel account. We are in a very serious part of the gospels. Let's read with great reverence, let's uh, adore him, as that song just said as we read. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this is the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how blessed we are that you are a God who speaks to your people. Your word is before us this morning, Father, and we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that we would listen. Open our eyes and our hearts to receive and apply your wonderful truths. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please be seated. As you're finding your seats, I'd ask you to have your outlines. We are in the Advent season. Advent, that's our, our fancy word for saying in this situation, the, the first coming of Jesus eternal son of God who came to this earth and humbled himself and came as a baby through the Virgin Mary. Uh, usually in December we will take a break from our normal studies and do four lessons, five lessons on something regarding the incarnation, something regarding Jesus becoming a man. And, and Pastor Brian and I prayed about it and this year we decided not to based on where we are, and I've had several people come up to me the last few weeks saying how blessed they've been that we're studying the cross during the Advent it's a, it's a blessed reminder that when we're thinking about the miracle of Christmas, we're not just thinking about the miracle that God took on flesh, we're also thinking about the grace of why God took on Christ 
didn't just come to this world so he could experience human things. He came to his creation to die for his creation. And this is that reminder. Um, do you want me to use the microphone? Is this okay? I'll use this one. Thanks for working with us through our tech as we're figuring things out. We got our text and we got the cross. Let's dig in. You've got your notes, you see under Roman numeral 1, we're in the final hours of the crucifixion. And we see in verse 45, from the 6th hour until the ninth hour, there's darkness over all the land. The 6th hour, ninth hour, that's roughly from noon to 3 p.m. So we know, without knowing too much about Hebrew culture, we know from noon to 3, it's not dark. From, from noon to 3... Normal is the sun is out. Normal is the sun is at its brightest. And what's happening now is there's darkness over the land. And what we know about Passover, it's happening on the full moon. So if, if, if the Passover is happening on the full moon, if Jesus is dying on the cross during the full moon, this isn't a solar eclipse. This is something else. If we're really skeptical, maybe we're saying it was a really cloudy day, but the text certainly doesn't allow it. What we are seeing is something out of the ordinary that can't be explained. In Bible terms, that's what's called a miracle. This is an act of God. And the Bible text doesn't specifically say why the land is dark for this term. And it says land, and our, our word land... It's a word that we could take it as all land, every land all over the globe. Or we could take land as in a certain geographic land. I tend to lean towards the second. I think the darkness is over a geographic section, whether that's just Jerusalem or just the Roman Empire. We saw this in Exodus, Exodus chapter 10, when the plague of darkness comes. That darkness wasn't over the whole globe. That darkness was specifically over Egypt. And we see that because Israel had light. Israel had their normal day and night, but Egypt was plagued with darkness. So we have in this situation an unexplained darkness. And some commentators speculate maybe this is symbolic of, of the son of righteousness being crucified. Here, son, S-U-N. Jesus being that son of righteousness. There's a couple of phrases in the Bible that refer to him as the son of righteousness. Uh, maybe this is uh, a blinding of the nations. We see many, many times in Scripture darkness, either literal or symbolic, darkness representative of God's judgment coming upon a people or a nation. Um, some might even said maybe this is a missional, like missionary type thing, where if you're on the other side of Jerusalem and all of a sudden... In the middle of the day, there's darkness, and then several hours later, there's earthquakes, and a couple of days later, you see someone who wasn't alive all of a sudden alive, and you're figuring out what in the world happened. Oh, that was the day Jesus died. Then maybe that's to provoke in their heart something to wake our eyes, to wake our mind and soul up to the fact that Jesus really was who he said he was. I tend to take the stance that this darkness is a representation is an illustration of God the Father turning his back on God the Son. Because God the Son, Jesus Christ, 
has taken on the sin of his people. A forsaken of the Son. This is beyond serious. This is beyond our comprehension that the second person of the Trinity is suffering the wrath of a holy father. And this is what's happening for these three hours on the cross. And we, we alluded to this last week. There's something way more serious than the physical pain that Jesus is enduring. And it's what Jesus is enduring spiritually. And this is the apex of that suffering. And it leads him to cry in, in verse 46. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The, the um, translation of that, and the commentary is very helpful to tell us that. The, through the Holy Spirit, we see that the scripture is what it means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? If you did the homework you were assigned, that hopefully rings a bell right away. Those are the opening words of Psalm 22. David, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken? And if you read that psalm, hopefully there were many, many things in that psalm that reminded you of what's happening right here. In the Gospel account, in verse 6 of Psalm 22, we see that he's despised by the people. In verse 7, he's ridiculed. In verse 8, the crowd mocked. Where is your God to deliver you now? Verse 14, his bones are pulled out of joint. Verse 15, his hands and his feet are pierced. Verse 18, his garments are divided. Over and over again in that psalm, we are seeing things that connect to what's happening right here and right now to Jesus. Growing up and studying this passage, my early understanding of this was that Jesus saying the opening words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he was saying that to help slow people like me to see the connection between what was happening and Psalm 22. I have to say as I've studied this passage more, as I've studied scripture more, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe this was Jesus pointing us to Psalm 22 as much as it was Jesus feeling forsaken by God. And I, I believe this is a genuine cry at the depth of his suffering. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken? And again, theologically speaking, Jesus knows that answer. Jesus knows the text. Jesus knows the necessity of what he's doing, but he's fully human and he's feeling it all. He's fully divine and he's feeling it all. There's nothing else to say but my God, my God. Why have you forsaken? Consistent with the theme, the crowd's mock. Is he calling for Elijah? Going back to our passage from last week. God the Father is not there to save him. He can't save himself. Now he's crying out to people that haven't died. Hoping that they still have enough life to come and save. Totally scornful. Intentionally hurtful to Jesus. I hope he hears this. I hope it's another dagger to his soul. Someone's stricken to uh, 
take a sponge and fill it with sour wine, wine, put it on a reed, offer it to him. This is again his fulfilling scripture we saw last week from Psalm 69. Then we see in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It's an interesting phrase. It says he cried with a loud voice. This text doesn't tell us what he says. John 19 says that he cries from the cross. It is finished. At this point, when Jesus is making this declaration, he's felt all the wrath. So there is the point where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his final breaths, he's not wondering that anymore. In his final breaths, that comforting presence of the Father is once again with him. He's at complete peace. He knows he's done what he had to do. He knows, back, back a few chapters in Matthew, chapter 20, verse 28, he has done what he had to do to be the ransom price for many. So according to Luke, those words it says in, he says in the cross of Luke, He's now comforting to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, and this phrase is very different than anything else we see in Scripture. It doesn't say he died. It doesn't use gentler words, he passed away. It says he yields his spirit. And that, that's a, it's, it's a hard to explain phrase because you and I can't do this. So when, when it's saying this, we're not supposed to be led to believe he died from the pain on the cross. Because we see in other gospel accounts, this, his, his dying happens much earlier than the other two people. And that bothered me for a long time as a kid. Wasn't he strong enough to keep going? If, if, if he's the carpenter who had physical strength, if he's the son of God who has emotional and spiritual strength, why couldn't he keep going? And I was missing something. He's not dying from the pain. If this isn't a taking of his own life. I'll use gentle words because of the kids in the audience. He yields his spirit. Father, it's finished. And it's time to go home. And the Father welcomes him back with open arms. He gives up his life. He yields his life back to the Father. And again, I wish my, my human words could explain this a little better because there was a huge significance here. But it is still, so significant number one, the, the Son has that strength, has that right to yield his spirit, but there's a very real death. To, to quote one of our, our songs that we sing, Tis Mystery All, the immortal one dies. And this is a cataclysmic event, so Roman numeral 2. So cataclysmic events happen on the earth. We, we, we see in verse 51, So behold, the veil of the temple is torn in two, from top to bottom. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And then we see the earth quaking, the rocks splitting, graves open, so that many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep, that word fallen asleep, that's a poetic word for saying died, saints of those who have died were raised. Coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to men. You're one of the witnesses. 
either because you hate Jesus or because you love Jesus. You are yards away from Jesus while he's on the cross. You see his suffering. You see the earth go black with no reason for it to go black. You feel the weight of what has happened because it's unavoidable. All of a sudden, the man who's been suffering so deeply for so many hours has this unexplainable energy. And he says with a loud, bold voice for all to hear. It is finished. And then the earthquakes. You can't stand on your own feet because the entire globe is moving. Something's happening. And from where you are, you can't tell the depth of it yet because you don't know about the graves because you're not near those graves. But if you're somewhere else in Jerusalem, all of a sudden it's dark, and then all of a sudden it's shaking, and then all of a sudden there's the guy you held buried two weeks ago. What are you doing? i got to tell you about Jesus. How did you get here? i got to tell you about Jesus. And the scripture does not tell us what happens to these people after this, so I'm not going to speculate on something like that. Did they die again? Did, did God take them from there? The scripture doesn't say, but the scripture says it's a resurrection, so I'm going to stand on that. There are people that would die. There are saints. They were brought back to this earth much like Elijah, uh, or Lazarus. You got a little bit more to do. You got to proclaim Jesus. All of these things are happening as the immortal one dies. And then we get to the next few verses, verses 44 through 46. And these verses are for the Jews. We remind ourselves the Gospel of Matthew, this was written as a Gospel account to a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience of that day did not think very highly of non-Jews, and unfortunately, didn't think super highly of ladies. But, but look at the, the responses of, of, of the people's positive responses. Verse 54, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. There were Jewish religious leaders there. They didn't come to that conclusion. There were people that prided themselves on how much Old Testament scripture they memorized. They couldn't see it. But here are irreligious Roman soldiers that can't deny the facts. That guy who just died is the son of God. And then we get into verse 55. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and, Ma and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Zebedee's sons uh, this again, this was a, uh, a harsh thing to read if you're... A Jewish man, because you would have said, well, the people that should have been the strongest, the people that should have had the strongest endurance and been able to 
suffer through persecution and been bold enough to be at Jesus' side, that should have been the disciples. That should have been the men of the church, but those guys are nowhere to be found. Who has the faith, who has the strength, who has the courage to be there? The ladies who have been so faithful since the beginning. Which again, it's, it's that nudge the Jewish audience needs to hear. Not only Jewish men step up, but Jewish men humble yourselves and accept the fact that God gives his grace of faith to ladies as well. That is at what Matthew records as the history of what happens. And we need to have that history. And we need to study that history. The book of Hebrews is a gift to us because it goes beyond the history. Here's theologically what that history means. I hope maybe I, I'm a history teacher by trade. Um, it pains me when I talk to people who I never liked history. <laughs> then you have a lousy history teacher. <laughs> I hate that Mariah's nodding her head as her history teacher. <laughs> History's a gift. And if we've got someone who can help us not just memorize dates and names, but see this is the significance of what happened. Follow the trajectory of what happened from there to where we are, from there to where we could be. And especially if we understand that God is the Lord of history. Look at what God is doing as he guides things. And there's a theological significance to what happened that day on the cross. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll read a few verses from Hebrews 9 and 10. Many years ago, our church went through a one-year study of Hebrews. We studied for 52 weeks from Hebrews chapter 1 to Hebrews chapter 13. I was blessed to teach many lessons in that amazing book. Every time I taught, I asked the question of the people's crammed in the little room. I asked, what is the theme of Hebrews? <laughs> Mary remembers. Every week we said, Jesus is better. The book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus Christ. So every week we reminded ourselves as we got into the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. So when we come to Hebrews, we, with knowing by the name of it, we know what it's about, at least a little bit. This was a book written to Hebrew Christians. It was a book written to Hebrew Christians that had a strong temptation to go back to Judaism. They were following Christ, but not all their relatives were. They were following Christ. We're getting near the Christmas season. It's a wonderful season. For some of us, it's a painful season. Because we're going to celebrate Christmas with people that we know are rejecting Christ. We have such a heart for them to finally believe in Christ. And some of us are going to get some serious rebuke. Some of us are going to get that rebuke because we're the traitors. Because we no longer follow that religion. Now we follow Christ. This is happening in the Hebrew uh, church. 
that this letter was written to. There's a strong temptation from these people. My grandfather and my great-grandfather and my ancestors for a thousand years followed these Old Testament Jewish principles. I enjoyed following these Old Testament Jewish traditions. I want to go back. The author of Hebrews is pleading with them. Don't go back. Jesus is back. Don't go back. All of those Old Testament things you love so much, they all find their fulfillment in Christ. Christ didn't throw them away. Christ fulfilled them. He perfectly kept every single thing. Those were the shadow. Jesus is the reality. Follow Christ. You've got on the back, I wish the, uh, I, I like the logo and then I made it look that size and it's kind of hard to read. Um, but you've got on your back of your outline, this is a, a picture of the courtyard, both the tabernacle and the temple. So for, again, for history's sake, the tabernacle, that was a traveling building. Building's not even the right word, it's more of a tent. It had to travel because Moses was given those designs. I'm going to say that again. Moses was given the designs. Moses didn't gather a church committee. What color do we want the carpet? How big do we want this to be? Can we get everybody to fit? Will it be comfortable? God said, this is what you're going to do. This is how you are going to design it. And so within this tabernacle, we have a holy place, and we have a most holy place. That was the structure for the tabernacle as it traveled. Because again, Moses was given these designs before Israel was in the promised land, so it had to travel, had to move with them. And then Solomon is given then designs for the same thing on a little grander scale in the temple. But in both the tabernacle and the temple, we had a, a whole, an outer courtyard and a holy place and a most holy place. Let's keep that in mind as we read from, from Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which you can see in your logo, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, so this is now the Holy of Holies, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and the Ark of the Covenant, covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Why, why is he talking about this? He's building his case, the author of Hebrews. He's talking about something that meant a whole lot to the Jewish people. You already know this, but let's talk a little bit. In the tabernacle was a holy place. And beyond that was a most holy place. Okay, let's go back to Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned. And when Adam and Eve sinned, bringing sin into this world, that changed everything because God is holy, totally separate from sin. And now because of Adam, you and I are not. So we have a holy God that can have nothing to do with sin. 
And we have sinners. We, as sinners, have no right to appear before a holy God. No right at all. We can demand nothing. God is so incredibly gracious. He provided a means by which we can appeal to him and come to him. We see that a little bit in Genesis. It really comes to fruition in Exodus. When God sets up this sacrificial system. With this sacrificial system, it centers around the priest. The priest is our representative before a holy God. So the priesthood was a reminder, you have no business coming to God. Shame on you for even trying, because you're a sinner and God is not. But God is gracious and he provided a way. So the, the way was, we sinners in Israel, we come before the priest. We come before the priest in God's way. Okay. Twenty minutes in before I hit it, it's not that. <laughs> we come in God's way. We don't get to say, "I like this, God." I think the best way to worship you is this, God. We don't get a vote. God, in his grace, said, you can come before me in this way. We use, go through the priest. The priest, then, he brings that offering before God. And you've got those things, again, on your little artwork there. You've got the altar. You've got the, the leather. The, the priest has to wipe to clean himself. Even though the priest is our representative, he's not holy yet. So he has to do his thing to get himself holy, and then he has the right to bring the offerings, to bring the gifts, and it all culminates one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Now that is a very, very different day, because on that day, now not every priest, but the high priest can go not just into the holy place, but the most holy place. There's a veil, a huge, thick curtain, separating the holy place from the most holy place. The high priest has the right on the Day of Atonement to bring a great sacrifice for all of God's people on the Day of Atonement. He has to come with blood. Because we learned again in Genesis the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Sin is so severe, the only payment is death. Here's God's merciful system. God provides a substitute. This animal can die in your place. You deserve to die because you're the sinner. But God is so gracious, God sets up the system. This animal can die in your place. You can bring that before the priest. That animal's blood can be shed on your behalf. And on the Day of Atonement, the, the day of great blood, imagine the smell in the city as the animals are slaughtered on your behalf. You've got this symbolic, two symbols in the goats. The priest hand goes on one goat, and one goat dies. And you see the symbolism. That goat died in my place. 
Then you also see the scapegoat. The priest puts his hand on the scapegoat. The scapegoat runs into the wilderness never to be seen again. The symbolism. Because of God's grace, because of what happened on the Day of Atonement, just like that goat will never be seen again, my sins I committed will never be brought up again. Those sins are gone. They're covered by God's gracious sacrificial system. That's when the priest, the high priest, can enter the Holy of Holies. Only that day. Wow. Hebrews 9, verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went in the first part of the tabernacle, always meaning that was a daily thing the priest had to do in the holy place. Verse 7. But into the second part, this is now the, the, the most holy place, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. Stop right there. The symbolism of the Day of Atonement is incredible. Just incredible. And if you were a Jew of that era, you should have rejoiced in God's grace that took place in the Day of Atonement. But here's the thing. You gotta do it again next year. And then the year after that. And then the year after that. Something beautiful happened, but something incomplete happened because it has to be repeated. Your sins are covered. See you again next year. And we see in this verse, the high priest, he's doing this great act on our behalf before God. But what does he do first? He's got to offer a sacrifice for himself because he's not holy yet. So our representative before God is flawed. And the great ceremony is beautiful because God designed it, but it's incomplete because we've got to repeat it. Verse 11 of Hebrews 9. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. Not with the blood of, bull, uh, of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So many things there. This is five sermons, just in these two verses. We praise the Lord for the Old Testament sacrificial system, especially if you were a Jew in the Old Testament. It's incredible. But we have a, a, a fallible high priest offering a sacrifice of an animal. Number one, fallible high priest, not going to do it. Number two, it's blood being shed. But it's just a lamb. We have to know in the back of our head, that can't be enough for what I've done. That can't be enough for what I've done today, let alone my whole life. He's entering a holy place. And again, we praise the Lord that there was a holy place, 
but we, we understand how holy could it be because it was made by hands? And if God's omnipresence, is, is that really the place, the true place of God's presence? And the author of Hebrews says, those things are a shadow of the reality. The high priests of the Old Testament were great for what they are. They were pointing forward to the truly great high priest. The one man who really, truly could represent us before a holy God. Because he is the one without sin. The Old Testament points forward to the great high priest. The great high priest, Jesus, he's not just going into the Holy of Holies in the temple. He's going into the place that's truly whole, to the true throne room of God in heaven. And as the great high priest goes before God in all of his glory in heaven, he's taking with him not a sacrifice of a lamb. He's taking with him the sacrifice of the lamb of God. The great high priest offers himself as the great sacrifice. Now our sins can be atoned for. Everything in the Old Testament was magnificent. It was pointing forward to Christ. Jesus is better. Let's talk about that holiness thing again. Because God is holy and we are not. In the Old Testament, we have no right to go before a holy God because we are covered filthy in our sins. Nothing the priest can do what he does, and we praise the Lord for that. I still got a sin problem. There is something infinitely more significant in the sacrifice of Christ. Let's read. Go to chapter 10. Well, let's go through it part by part. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 10. Every high priest stands, keep in mind stands, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. With the standing and the sitting, Jesus is not sitting because he's lazy or tired. Jesus is sitting because his work is done. The Old Testament priests, they are standing, their position here is standing because I got more to do. I got to do this, then I got to do this, then I got to do this, then I got to do this, and the guy after me has to do this and this and this and this. My work is never done because my work is pointing forward to someone else. Jesus offers one Sacrifice for all. He's done. It is finished. So he sits. And where does he sit? At the right hand of the throne of God. He sits at the place of power and authority. He's not just a priest. So we've got this one time sin. It's complete so he can sit. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected Forever, those who are being sanctified. If you were someone, I don't like writing in my Bibles. I, I feel like I'm messing something up. If you're someone that likes writing in your Bibles, underlining in your Bibles, that word perfected is huge. 
The Old Testament sacrifices were sufficient in God's means to cover your sin. Maybe we've done those coverings in our house. Maybe it's been a long week and all of a sudden someone calls and says, Hey, I'm coming over for dinner. I don't have time to clean. Time to get strategic with blankets and cover things. The mess is still there. I'm covering things. I'm praying the people that come over are gracious and won't judge me under their breath. It helps a little bit. It's still there. The Old Testament sacrifices were incredible. God designed them. They were coverings. The blood covered our sins. Praise the Lord. I need something more. Christ's sacrifice doesn't cover our sins. Christ's sacrifice removes our sin. It is cast away as far as the east is from the west. Using financial terms, the debt has been paid in full. I owe, my sins are horrible, I owe $7 trillion. That number we can throw around too much these days. I owe $7 trillion, I could never in a million lifetimes come up with that. Someone paid my debt in full. That debt is no longer on my account. We stop there, that's great. But if we stop there, I'm neutral. My sins are gone, but I'm still just a blank slate me. Christ's sacrifice doesn't just remove the filth. We have what the Puritans called a double imputation. Part one, my sins are put on Christ's account. He suffers in my place. He pays the debt I could never pay. Incredible. Half the story. My horrible sins go to him. He suffers hell on earth for three hours in my place. His perfect righteousness comes to me. I'm not a blank slate. I'm in Christ. It's not just my sins are gone. It's the holiness and righteousness and justice and goodness of God is clothing me. Before, I had no right going before a holy God. There was a veil separating me from the holiness of God. When Jesus dies on the cross, when he says it is finished and surrenders his soul to the Father, God himself tears the veil from top to bottom. There was a separation. It's gone. God is still holy, but miracle is miracles if we're found in Christ, so are we. The veil has been removed, and we all have access to the Holy Holies. Look at Hebrews 10 again, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holies by the blood of Jesus.
by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. There's that word. That is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Because we've had our hearts sprinkled through an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When Pastor Brian prayed today, he prayed that we would come before the throne of God with holy reverent fear, not with a cavalier attitude. That's an appropriate thing to pray. We should come before his throne room with holy fear, but not with ungodly fear. Because if we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, Hebrews tells us, come boldly. The veil's been torn because of Christ. Come early enough. You're hurting? Go to God. You're confused? Go to God. You are stuck in sin and you can't get out in the blood of Christ. Go to God. He's not just the Holy Lord. He's your loving Father. Come to His throne of boldness. Let's summarize. Christ is on the cross. The earth goes black. In agony, Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying that because at that moment in history, he is bearing the cost of every single one of your sins. Past, present, future. Every single one of my sins. For me alone, that's a lot. He's bearing our sins. He's suffering the wrath of God because of his great love for you and me. Jesus dying on the cross was not just a good example of selflessness for us. Don't minimize the cross. He had to die to redeem. He chose to die as your substitute in our place to redeem us. In doing so, he clothed us in his perfect righteousness. The veil has been torn. And we have every right and should often come before the holy throne of God in the name and blood of Jesus. This is why we can sing our first song over oh, wonderful cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, with holy fear we come before you boldly. We recognize our weakness, we recognize our insufficiencies, we recognize the filth of our sin. But we also recognize the completed once-for-all work of Jesus Christ. We recognize as wretched as our sin is, the sacrifice of Christ is that much more glorious. The cross was enough, Lord. There is no reason to add to it. The work is finished. 
Thank you. Remind us often the work is finished. Remind us often because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we have every right to come before you in prayer. May we not think so little of the cross that we think you grow weary of hearing us. May we rejoice in the power of the cross. May it affect our lives in so many ways. May we find peace and rest knowing that because your work, the work of Christ is finished, he is seated at your right hand. As we are paralyzed by our sins, may we find our energy in the fact that you give us strength right now. And the same power that rose Christ from the dead dwells in us. May we live like who we are. If we are holy in the name of Christ, may we pursue holiness with a zeal that knows no bounds. As our children and grandchildren open Christmas gifts, may we remind them of the great. Use us, we pray. Increase our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name.